Well, hey, good morning, Harvest. How we doing? Good. So fall is coming, huh? Can you feel it in the air? It's getting darker. It's rainy. Like it's, it's coming for us, whether we want it or not. Do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Hebrews 2. We're going to be in Hebrews 2 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. We have people coming down the aisles that would love to give you a copy of God's Word. Um, If you're new here, my name is Calvin, and I'm the lead pastor here at Harvest. So glad that you're hanging out with us this morning. Um, We're just so pleased to have you worship with us, hoping you're blessed by your experience with us this morning. And uh, we are in the third week in our study of the book of Hebrews. And if you've been with us for the past few weeks, uh, you remember that right out from the onset, I said that Hebrews um, is said to be one of the most important books in the New Testament. It is filled with so much good and rich theological truth. And if you hang with us this fall, we're going to learn a lot about God's character, about his nature, about how God works. We're going to learn a lot about Jesus. And one of the things you have to remember about the book of Hebrews is that it's not written like a letter. Like when Paul wrote books in the New Testament, most of his writing was letters to churches that he had planted. So it was like an email that you would send or a letter that you'd write to a loved one. It was formatted like a letter. Hebrews is different. Hebrews is structured like a sermon. So this is written like you would preach it or or it was written to be um, preached like a sermon. So I wanna give you a little industry secret here. Um, When you are writing a sermon or if you're preaching a sermon, here's what I'm trying to do. Well, what you try to do is you try to get people to lean in as close as they can. You want people on the edge of their seat. So you tell a funny story, you, you talk about something that's really, really interesting, and you try to get people to like lean in as close as you can so that you can jab them in the nose when they're least expecting it, all right? That, that's how preaching works. It's a little bit like boxing. Can I draw you close? Can I draw you close? Then you pop them with something convicting or, or, or a truth that, that's going to hit them in a way of like, man, I didn't think about that, or, or wow, that really grabbed my attention this week. And um, today in Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, um, the writer of Hebrews gives his first jab. All right, so he spent chapter one just talking about how great Jesus is. And imagine reading this for the first time, like you're leaning in after chapter one. It's like he created all things, he's seated at the right hand of God, that he holds everything together by the word of his power, and then he's greater than the angels, and he's got the most magnificent name and the most magnificent kingdom and power and ministry. You're like, man, this is awesome. I'm so encouraged by Jesus. They're leaning in. And chapter two, verses one through four is the first of four warnings we see in the book of Hebrews. So today, I'm just going to be honest with you, is a little bit of a jab to our noses, um, so to speak, as followers of Jesus. Today is gonna be convicting because it's a warning. And Hebrews, like, in spite of all this, the writer's saying, listen, there's some things that you have to be aware of. So look at Hebrews two, starting at verse one. Follow along as I read. We're only gonna be in four verses this morning. Here's what it says. It says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and then it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Okay, so here's the clear warning we see this morning. It's this, our hearts have a tendency, our hearts tend to drift from Jesus. 
our hearts tend to drift to Jesus. Look at the urgency in verse one. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention. He's like, we've got to press in here. It's not just pay attention or pay close attention. He's saying, listen, we've got to remember, we've got to focus, we've got to pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. You know, if I was able to sit down and have a one-on-one conversation with anyone in this room, or honestly, really any of the pastors at this church, and you were to ask us, what's the hardest part about being a pastor? I mean, you know what we'd say? We wouldn't say it's the time commitment, even though as a pastor, sometimes your schedules get weird because there's hospital visits and weddings and funerals and you're kind of always on call. Um, That can be difficult, but that's not the hardest part. The hardest part's not the weight of ministry, even though there is a spiritual weight to, to serving a church. That's not it. It's not the prep for a sermon. It's not the fear of public speaking and what you all are thinking about me right now as I'm talking. You know what the hardest part is? It's seeing people who we loved, who at one point were engaged and on fire for the Lord and watching them drift away. And um, I think of this as a former youth pastor. Like I had students in our youth ministry that loved Jesus, serving him, witnessing to their friends at school, so on fire. And, And then they got distracted and they just moved on and they drifted away. I think of people that used to be in my small group who I love fiercely who have left, not to go to a different church or a different ministry. They haven't moved. They've just drifted from their walk with the Lord. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells a parable of a sower or a farmer who sows seeds into four types of different soils. And the seed represents the gospel. And of the four soils, there's one soil that never accepts Jesus. It's called the path. It says the birds eat the seeds up right away. There's a rejection of the gospel. They want nothing to do with it. But here's what's interesting. The next three soils all accept Jesus and the gospel and are excited for a season. Right, there's three types of soils. There's rocky soil, thorns, and good soil. The good soil, it remains, it stays, and it bears fruit. But look what Jesus says about the middle two soils, the rocky soil and the thorns. He says this in Matthew 13, verse 20. He says, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but he endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on the count of the word, he immediately falls away. And then as for the one that was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Okay, so here's what this means. Of the three soils that accept the gospel and accept Jesus at face value, two thirds eventually drift away or fall away. Some drift because there's persecution or trials or life gets difficult and they don't know how to reconcile God with what they're experiencing and going through right now. So they punt on the whole thing. And others just drift away because they get focused on riches and cares of the world and they just get distracted and drift. All right, so can we do some scary math right now? So at our church, um, between the Saturday night service, the two services here and the two services at our Grand Haven campus, we have roughly 3,000 people tend every weekend. And according to this math that we see in the Bible, does that mean that 2,000 of us are going to eventually just drift away from the Lord? Like I pray that that's not the case for us. 
I think about the um, God at work stories we've done at our church. And if you've been at our church for an extended period, you know that one of the things that we're committed to is to capturing stories of lives that are being transformed by God in our church. And we shoot, you know, six to 10 minute videos that kind of celebrate their story. We did this just a couple of weeks ago with Jason and Holly Gray. And listen, we've done dozens of these now uh, throughout the history of our church. And as I look back on the God at work stories, you know, there's some people that are still just loving the Lord and bearing fruit and God's continuing his work and it's amazing. And then there's others who have drifted away. I think of examples from the Bible, right? I think about the church of Ephesus, right? The church of Ephesus, its founding pastor was the apostle Paul and its second pastor was Timothy, Paul's apprentice. So can we just agree for a moment that the church of Ephesus had better pastors than we do? right? Like um, they, they kind of had it made when it comes to pastors and, and they were on fire. They were following the Lord. Everything was going great. But then just a few decades later in Revelation 2, 4, Jesus writes to the church of Revelation and says this, but this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So it doesn't matter how great the pastors are and how on fire the church was for a moment, there's this sense where it's easy to drift away from Jesus. This is the warning we're getting in verse one of chapter two. We can't drift. C.S. Lewis says this, he says, as a matter of fact, if you examined a hundred people who lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by an honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away, right? What he's saying is, is that for 98% of people who um, walk away from Jesus, it's not like they had coffee with an atheist and an atheist gave them some arguments that they couldn't answer and they were reasoned out of it. It says, no, 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 they just drifted and it was slow and it was over time, but the love for the Lord faded away in their hearts. And so... I don't know where you're at this morning. Maybe you're here and you're like, Cal, I can't resonate with this at all. I feel so close to the Lord. My walk with the Lord is is going amazing. And, And listen, if that's you, I'm so excited for you and I'm pumped for you and I'm thankful for that. Um, But if you're like me, you might be in here this morning and you might be sensing in your heart, you know what? I feel like something's drifting. That that this love I had for the Lord, it's not as bright as it used to be. And I'm worried there's some things going on in my heart that I don't even know if I could put words to, but it feels like I might be drifting. So what I wanna do this morning is I wanna kind of take a deep dive on this topic of drifting. And I wanna talk about reasons we drift, where we drift and and what that looks like in our lives. So here's what I wanna do first. I wanna talk about reasons we drift. And so to continue with the analogy, I'm gonna say that the first reason we drift is the current of staleness. We tend to drift away from Jesus on the current of staleness. This is something we talked about last week and it's this, that you and I tend to get bored with the gospel. Right, The fact that God in love sent his son to come and die on a cross to pay for our sins, to show us the greatest love the world has ever seen, far outpacing what we could ever deserve. We're like, yeah, I've heard that. What's next? And even though it's the most amazing thing in the history of the world, we get bored with it. We take it for granted because we hear it all the time. Um, If you're a parent, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but like the first time you take your kids to fly on an airplane, right? 
Like your kids are so pumped to go on an airplane and they get in the security line and they're like, you know what? Isn't this awesome? I'm gonna get to walk through a box that's gonna beep if I have metal on me. This is so amazing. Like they love it. They're like, wait, I get to put my shoes in a basket? This is awesome. And then they get to the airport like, there's restaurants in this place? This place is so cool. Then they get on the plane and like, there's someone that's gonna give me pop while I sit at the seat and they're looking out the windows and like, they're loving the whole thing and they look at you and they're like, dad, isn't traveling on an airplane the coolest thing ever? And I'm like, no, you're wrong. It's terrible, right? <laughs> right, because we've done it enough that it's lost its splendor. Like, if you think about it, like, like, let's just think about it. The fact that I can, in just a few hours from now, be on a machine that's gonna take me tens of thousands of feet in the air and travel around the country or the world, it's amazing, isn't it? But it's become commonplace in our lives. It's become normal. We take it for granted and we think about all of the inconveniences of it rather than how amazing of a gift that that is. The same exact thing is true in our relationship with Jesus. I'll prove it to you maybe a little bit more personally. Remember when you first started dating your spouse and you sat across the table from them and looked in their eyes and they were the most perfect person in the whole world? They had absolutely zero flaws. They smelled amazing, right? They were so interesting and they were so cute. And you're like, this is the greatest thing ever, right? All right, how about moms, right? Remember the first time holding your baby being like, oh man, she's perfect. She's such a gift, Right, four years later, you're like, I want to jump out of a window, <laughs> right? My kid's driving me crazy, right? What is such a gift and so beautiful and so perfect originally? We get bored with, we take for granted, it gets stale, and this is something we're absolutely at risk with. See how I drew you in there? With some funny stories to pop you in the nose, right? It's a real thing. It gets stale. So what does this staleness look like? Um, Right, just not pumped to worship. I'm not feeling it today. Don't like the music, right? Because worship is all about what I want and what I like. Or maybe this one's a little bit more convicting. Just didn't come to church prepared to meet with the Lord. Didn't pray beforehand. Didn't set any time aside in my life to think about it. Wasn't, you know, wasn't ready to encounter the living God in his house with his family not investing in your relationship with God on a day in, day out, week in, week out basis, not pumped about loving others, right? Other people are kind of a hassle, like leave me alone, let me do my own thing, not reading your Bible, not repentant or sensitive to sin like you used to be, just kind of letting things slide in your life. Like if these are feelings that you sense, it's because you're drifting into staleness. We're just way too comfortable with the awe and splendor and majesty of Jesus. It's worn away in our hearts. Here's the second current we tend to drift on. It's this, it's busyness. We drift from Jesus in the current of busyness. And this is one that I think is very, very practical. We tend to fill our lives with so much stuff that we simply don't have time to invest in the one relationship that matters most, our relationship with Jesus. Between work, kids' activities, family, relationship, family relationships, hobbies, work commitments, busy schedules, you know, we fill our lives so jam-packed. And here's why we do it, because we believed the American lie that important people are busy people. So the more busy I am, the more important I'm going to seem to others. So I can't say no to anything. I'm gonna always just talk casually about how busy I am because we view that in America as a virtue. Busyness, busyness, busyness. 
know, it's interesting that when God established creation, he created the world in six days and then he set aside a day to rest. Do you think God was tired? Do you think he needed to rest? No, probably not. Like he spoke the universe into existence. It wasn't hard work for him. The reason he took a Sabbath or a day of rest was to establish a rhythm in our life to say that it is healthy for our hearts to take one day a week and to worship and to rest and to do what Psalm 4610 says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted amongst the earth. A lot of us can't remember that God is God because we've never taken time to be still. Okay, so here's a question. Uh, Where are my millennials in the room? If you're a millennial, raise your hand. Be proud, I'm not gonna be mean, I promise, right? Like millennials are so nervous when you ask them who millennial is because there's no one in our society that gets made fun of more than millennials. And so what I thought I would do right now is I wanna praise our, our millennial generation here for a second because what you're finding or what studies are showing both in the church and in our country is that millennials are the ones that are actually fighting for a, a rhythm of life that is restful. There was a study that came out nationwide that says that 50% of millennials, they say when they go on vacation, they want to unplug from all technology. They don't want to be connected on their phones or on their computer. Like when they get away, they want to get away and rest. And only 39% of people in their 40s and 50s said that they would do that. There's an increase in wanting to unplug in young people. And then what, um, the other thing you're seeing in the church is there's this movement amongst younger believers and younger pastors and leaders and churches that are saying, we need to reclaim a Sabbath day. That this rhythm uh, of always working, always going, never resting, never unplugging, always being connected, that it's leading to increased anxiety and hopelessness in our life. And we need to fight for what God established and taking time to be with our loved ones, to unplug, to be still and know that God is God. You're seeing this trend around our country. It's important Busyness is a current that we can drift from Jesus. And then here's one, and this one was super convicting for me. This week, it's this. It's the current of habit. The current of habit. And when I talk about habits, I'm talking about all of the little things we do every day that we don't even think about anymore because we do it every day. A Duke University just came out with a study, and here's what it found. It found that up to 40% of our lives are not dictated by choices we make, but it's dictated by subconscious habits that because we've always done it or we've seen our parents do it and this is just how we view life, we just do it mindlessly without thinking. Habits can make up to 40% of our lives, right? And I wonder, do the habits, the small things we do every day, do they push us to worship and love Jesus as Lord and Savior? Right, think about what you do. What's the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? Are you on your phone for 20 minutes before you get out of bed? Is the first thing you run to coffee? Where's prayer fit into your daily habits? Where does God's word fit into your daily habits? How do you unwind after a long day? Right, when all the kids are down and the house is finally quiet, what is the thing that you go to? When you turn on your car, what are you listening to? Where is the time in your day where you have built in for for some peace and quiet and reflection and prayer? Like the habit, here's the question I'm asking. If I were to take my habits, 40% of my life, and put them on paper, and I put them on paper with someone else who wasn't a follower of Jesus Christ, would they look any different at all? 
Or have we been so persuaded by the American lifestyle that our subconscious habits mirror our culture and not our savior? It's interesting to think about. So here are some of the reasons why we drift. And what I want to do is, this is so important, I want to talk about two places that we tend to go when we drift, right? When we're drifting, we're not just drifting aimlessly, we're drifting to two places, and here's where they are. We're drifting to either license or legalism. License or legalism. And I get that these are churchy words and they're theological, so let me break them down and define them very carefully, but very tangibly so we can understand it. Here's what license means, and we'll talk about this first. License means I want salvation without surrender. License is this idea that, listen, I'm cool with Jesus dying on the cross and saving me from my sins, like I'm pumped to go to heaven, but practically, I do not want Jesus to be Lord of my life. I want that place. I want to be in control. I want to call the shots. I want to have the freedom and autonomy to decide to do with my life whatever I want to do. I want to be in control. It's wanting salvation without having to surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord. And so let's talk about this. This isn't in your notes, but you can write them down. I just didn't have space, but this is super helpful. I want to talk about three symptoms of a heart that is drifting towards license. Here's the first. When we're drifting towards license, we tend to become professional justifiers. When we're drifting towards license, we tend to be really good at justifying our actions and our behaviors. You ever have that moment when you get called out on something and like, you know, you're busted and you know, you're wrong, but you've got that inner lawyer in your mind. That's like, how can I weasel my way out of this? You ever have that? Please have it not just be me, right? Somebody raise their hand. Good, good. Okay. Some of you are hesitantly like, yeah, that's me, right? I remember growing up, If I came home and it was report card day and I got a bad grade, right? I'd get in trouble and my dad would be like, Cal, you're too smart to to be getting these bad grades. What happened? And here's what I'd say. Well, the teacher never liked me anyways, right? It's not my fault I got a bad grade. The teacher was a jerk. Uh, She has favorites. I wasn't one of her favorites. I never stood a chance. We try to make excuses, right? Or when I'm short with my wife, or I'm rude and Mary calls me out on it. It's like, listen, I, I, I know I shouldn't have said that, but work's been really stressful and I'm running on empty. So I, I, I'm sorry, but what I'm really communicating is, is it's not my fault. There's outside circumstances that are making me do this. And when we begin to justify a lot of actions that we know to be wrong, we know we're drifting towards license. Here's a couple of examples, right? I know there's a lot of better things I could and should be doing but I can be on this app for 20 more minutes. I can be on this website for just a little bit longer. It's calming me down. I'm tired. I've had a long day. I know there's better things, but but this is satisfying me right now in this moment, right? I know this thing is probably unhealthy, but I'm just really stressed and I'm really tired. No one's getting hurt. Um, How about this? I know that things aren't great in my marriage right now. I know that my wife and I aren't clicking, but listen, she knew who she married, right? I'm the same selfish moron I was when she married me. I haven't changed at all. This is on her. I don't need to do anything. This is just an extremely busy season, but I'll get back to walking with the Lord once this season of busyness is over. It's just a season. This isn't who I really am, right? We justify our actions. Here's the second symptom. This is a big one. I want affirmation and not accountability. Right, when I'm drifting towards license, I want to be affirmed, but I don't want my life to be spoken into. Right? Instead of a small group, we want a support group. 
right? Listen, if you want to encourage me, if you want to tell me how great I am and how much of a blessing I am to your life, like I'm all ears, like that, that sounds amazing. If you want to pray for me or encourage me or, or, or help me in a season where I'm struggling, I'm going to be super thankful for that. But if you want to speak into my life, or if you see things that's going on in my heart that aren't right and you try to speak some truth, I'm gonna get angry and I'm gonna get defensive and I'm gonna say, who are you to judge me? You're so judgmental. I'm gonna bite back. You see, we don't view people speaking into our lives as loving, but we view it as attacking and get defensive. Listen, one of the best indicators of where your heart is at is how do you respond when you're confronted with your own sin? Right now, listen, not every voice in your life is created equal, right? If you run into someone at the grocery store and they're critical of how you're parenting your kids and you've never met them before, hopefully that doesn't hold the same amount of weight as someone who's been in your small group for two years and knows you and loves you. Right, so there's some things that, that we can reject if there's no relationship. I'd hope we'd be humble enough to at least hear and consider. But, but here's what I'm saying. If there's someone that knows you and loves you, a family member or a small group member that's like, hey, listen, I'm seeing this in your marriage and you might be blind to this, but this is how you're treating your wife or this is what it's showing to the rest of the group. I'd hope you'd be humble enough to say like, you know what, maybe I am missing it. I know you love me. I know you care for me. I know you want what's best for me. And I'm going to consider these things carefully. Here's the third. When I'm drifting towards license, I live with a low-grade sense of anxiety. I live with a low-grade sense of anxiety. And here's why Psalm 40 verse four lists this out so well for us. It says this, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. And what I love about this verse is he's saying, listen, when we drift and when we're going to, I wanna be Lord of my life and I wanna be sovereign and I wanna be in control and I want freedom to do what I want, we're actually chasing a lie. Because here's the thing, You and I, we're not great gods. We're frail, we're weak. Someone can sneeze on us and we're sick for like a month. We're not in control. We're not all powerful. We're not sovereign. And this idea that we should be in control, it's a lie. And so when I get in these moments where I'm drifting towards license, God is good enough to have his spirit start start to raise some anxiety in my life. Like, Cal, you're going after the wrong thing. And this thing that you think is going to satisfy, once you get it, you're not going to be any more satisfied. What are you going to do then? There's this sense of, man, these things that I'm chasing, they're not going to last. They can be taken away at any moment. And it's because we're running after a false God. We're running after a lie. So much of the stress and fear in our lives stems from the reality that we are trying to live life apart from God and his lordship. And we're chasing down lies, believing they will satisfy All right, so that's the drift towards license. Let's talk about the drift towards legalism, right? If license is I want salvation without surrender, legalism is I want salvation without a savior. Legalism is I want salvation without a savior. Here's what that means. That means, listen, I wanna do it by myself and I want my righteousness and my standing before God, I want to have earned it in some way. Like, I love the idea about Jesus saving me. I just want him to save me because I'm good, not because I need saving and because I'm a savior. And and, and what we try to do is, is we try to base our standing before God, his happiness with us on our effort and our works and our merit. 
right? So let's talk about three symptoms of a heart that's drifting towards legalism. Here's the first. When I'm drifting towards legalism, trying to believe that I have to earn everything, I become hypersensitive to fairness. Fairness becomes very, very important to me if my heart is drifting towards legalism. Here's why. Because the idea of fairness is you get what you deserve. Everyone has to have equal outcomes. And if it's not fair, it's not right. All right, think about your family. Do you have anyone in your family who's like the fairness police and like freaks out whenever they think something's not fair? Um, We have that in our family. His name is Bo. He's six years old. And it's like, all right, Bo, hey, you got to go to bed at 7.30. The girls can go to bed at eight. Dad, that's not fair. They get to stay up later. No, well, it is fair, Bo, because they're two years older than you, right? It's funny how the fair police never complains when it's slanted in their favor, but when it's not in their favor, they freak out. Hey, hey, dad, why is Nora's piece of cake bigger than mine? It's like, Bo, it's not. It's bigger by like maybe, it's not fair, How come Ashley gets two pancakes and and I get one? How come Judah got a toy when he went to the store with like, everything's got to be fair. And when we spend our lives, first of all, just on a very, very practical level, if you live your life desiring everything to be fair, you're gonna be miserable because fairness is an illusion. Life's not fair. And by the way, we don't want it to be fair when it comes to our relationship with God. Look at me. None of us in here have been treated fairly by God. We've all been treated way, way, way better than fair, right? The wages of sin is death, right? But God in his love showed mercy by giving his son, Jesus Christ, to come and pay that penalty. So we don't get what's fair. We get mercy and we get grace and we get love. Jesus was treated very unfairly. He who was made sin, who knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Yet he did it with joy in his heart because he loves you. Listen, We have not been treated fairly by God. We've been treated way, way better. The gospel isn't about fairness. It's about grace and it's about love and it's about mercy, right? So if I live with this mindset that everything that God has done for me so far outpaces what I deserve, then I don't need to worry about what else happens, whether it's fair or not, right? But if I become hyper-focused on justice and fairness and everything needs to be equal, It might be because my heart is starting to believe that I've got to earn God's love and joy and happiness with me in my life. Here's the second one. When I'm drifting towards legalism, I tend to think more resume than relationship. I tend to think more resume than relationship. Here's what I mean by that. Maybe this is a better way to say it. I do the what of Christianity, but I'm missing out on the why. All right, so like if I were to ask you, hey, why are you at church this morning? Right, if your initial response is, well, it's nine o'clock on a Sunday, where else would I be? Right, I'm a church person and I go to church because that's what church people do and that's who I am. Like, are you here today simply because this is what you always do? Or was there a sense in your heart when you came into this place, man, I really wanna meet with the Lord. And I'm excited to worship him. I'm excited to experience his presence because God's presence inhabits the praise of his people. Listen, when we're singing worship together, we're not just singing songs. You know that, right? But we're meeting with the Lord in a way that's eternal and real and supernatural. Man, I wanna hear from his word and I want my heart to be changed and I want the rough edges to be smoothed and I want him to pierce my heart and convict me of sin. Is that your mentality? Like when you serve, 
Well, I'm serving because that's what good people do and I just wanna you know, give back and, and, and that's what I feel like I should be doing. Or is it, you know what, man, God's given me so much and when I serve, I'm living like Jesus Christ and the closer I get to be like Jesus Christ, the closer in relationship I'm going to be with him and that's worth any type of service, right? Small group. Are you like, man, I'm going to small group because I'm forced to hang out with these miserable people? Or is it, you know what? These are my brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Every family has weirdos and I love them and I care for them and I want to see them grow in Christ. I want to encourage others. And I know that I need to be encouraged and I have a, a vision for my life where I'm gonna know these people. And in five years from now, we're gonna be in awe and wonder of what God has done in our hearts and in our families, right? We just start doing things because we think we should do them rather than pressing into the why, which is growing closer with Jesus. And then here's the third one. I live life with a consistent low-grade sense of anxiety. Sound familiar? Right, it's the same as drifting towards license. And here's why. Because legalism and license, they're the two different sides of the same coin. It's trying to live life outside of the lordship of Jesus. The problem with trying to earn your salvation or base your relationship on God by your own merits, it doesn't work. And no matter how, how hard we try, we all sense this in us that we fall short and our thoughts are selfish and wicked way more than we would like to admit publicly. And so what we do is, is we know that we're not living up, but we feel like we have to play the part. So we get very, very good at pretending. So we come to church, we smile, we say everything's, okay, everything's great, everything's amazing when things are actually on fire and we live life pretending. I heard it described this way this week. I thought it was really, really good. It's pretending that things are all right when things aren't all right. It's like trying to live life by keeping a beach ball submerged underwater. No matter how much you wrestle it, no matter how much you press into it, it's going to pop up eventually. You can't do it. It's funny, Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Listen, there's nothing easy or light about trying to do it on your own. It's the exact opposite. Jesus says, I'm coming to free you from that. Put your hope and your trust and your faith on me, and then you can rest. Listen, Hebrews 2 is this warning, don't drift from Jesus. If we drift, we're going to unhealthy and dangerous places for our heart. Look at verse two. This is interesting. It says this, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared first by the Lord and then it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Here's what the author's saying. He's saying, listen, don't drift. And then he's saying, it's not God's fault you're drifting. He's saying, if you're here this morning and you're drifting from the Lord, what you don't get to do is blame it on God like God is playing hide and seek with you, but you can't find him. 
He's saying, listen, God has gone to extraordinary lengths to make himself known. At first he said that he's made himself known um, through the ministry of the angels. And you're like, Cal, what are you talking about there? Well, here's what that's referring to. And I don't have time to go into all the passages, but there's passages like Psalm 68, Deuteronomy 33 and Acts 7 that all make reference to that when Moses went up to Mount Sinai to receive the 10 commandments, to receive the law, it was actually angels that gave him the law. And he hung out with angels while he was on the mountain and they gave him the law of God. So the writer's like, listen, God sent angels to give you his law. And then he showed through the nation of Israel that when you disobeyed those laws, when you tried to do things on your own, it didn't go well. And then he says, not only that, but God has given you Jesus Christ. He's given you the testimony of those who have seen and heard what Jesus has done. And he's given you his Holy Spirit, which dwells inside you. You've seen the gifts and miracles of the work of Holy Spirit on display. Like God's done everything to make himself available to you. You're not drifting because God has gone anywhere. You're drifting because you're on a current that's taking you away. It's not God's fault that you and I drift. Okay, so that leaves like a pretty important question, right? So, so I mean, let's, let's like be honest at church. How many of you would say that when you drift, you tend to drift towards license, trying to want salvation without surrender? How many of you would say that's me? Come on, be honest at church, raise them high. Like I'm getting a lot of these right now for some reason, it's interesting to me. All right, how many of you would say that when I drift, I tend to drift towards legalism and trying to do it by myself? Right, how many of you are like, I got both. This is a problem. I'm in trouble, right? Both hands in the air, right? Okay, listen, you're not alone. Like, and I think there's a lot of us in here right now. They're like, man, I sense this in my heart. And how cool is it, by the way, that God's word written thousands of years ago can perfectly nail our heart today. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that a miracle? So what do we do to keep from drifting? Well, the good news is, is that there are things that we can do to center ourselves and to not drift from Jesus. Here's the first Um, We need to remember, we need to remember that Jesus is the author of life, that he is the good shepherd who's leading us to green pastures or still waters. We need to reject the lie that freedom means that I don't have to follow any rules and I can do whatever I want. That true freedom is found following the right good rules of Jesus living how we were designed, right? Let let me give you a couple examples of this, right? Imagine um, a, a shepherd in real life. Like if a shepherd's watching a flock, um, and he says, you know what, free, or sheep, you're free to go. Do whatever you want. I'm leaving. You can make decisions, decisions for yourself. Well, that was hard to say. Um, decisions for yourself. Can I ask you a question? Are the sheep free or are they in danger? Sheep without a shepherd are not free. They're in real danger. They don't know where food is. They don't know where water is. And they are very, very much at risk to wolves and to animals that would kill them and hurt them. All right, how about this? Right, Judah. My son, he's four years old. If I were to be like, hey, Judah, you know what? I've decided you can do whatever you want. You can eat what you want. You can stay up as late as you want. I'm not gonna tell you to do anything ever. Have I given Judah freedom or have I made him very, very unsafe? I've made him unsafe. So here's the question. Why do we believe that we are autonomous enough to not need God? He doesn't call us to serve him as Lord because he wants to enslave us. He wants us to experience freedom. And we need to reject this lie 
that freedom means I can do whatever I want. Listen, true freedom is understanding that God loves you, that he's good, that he's proven that he's for you by dying on a cross. What more could Jesus do to prove to you that he is worthy of following, that he's good? We need to remember how much Jesus loves us and how great he is. Then here's the third, or the second, sorry. The second is, is we need to repent. We need to repent. And I think about it as a pendulum. If legalism's here and license here, the middle, the center point is repentance. That is what keeps us centered. It's not part of the Christian life. It's central to the Christian life. Listen, repentance is saying, listen, it's talking to God about when you see your heart starting to drift. And if we repent often, that means we're gonna pull out the weeds before their roots grow too deep. So there should be this constant sense or this constant dialogue between us and God where it's like, hey God, here's where I sense my heart going. Would you help me? Forgive me for being selfish. Forgive me for wanting to do things on my own. Forgive me for trying to to earn my righteousness or my salvation. I don't wanna do that. I wanna remember you. Help me, forgive me. This is where I'm at. It's being honest. Repentance is the thing that centers us. And then here's the third The third is return. The third is return. And maybe you're here this morning and you're like, you know what? I've drifted for a long time and I feel far away. Well, here's the good news. The good news is, listen, we can't control yesterday. We don't know what tomorrow will hold, but right now God is giving us an opportunity to fix our eyes on Jesus. And even as we sing one more song together to say, listen, you are enough You are good. You are the only one I need. I want to center my life around you. So I wanted to close this morning with the big idea. We usually start with it, but here's what it is. It's this, without Jesus, how do you really believe it's going to end? How do you really believe it's going to end? And I just wanna read Hebrews 2, verse one again. Here's what it says. It says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Like maybe you're here and you're like, I don't know if I wanna return. And maybe I'm just gonna keep doing my own thing for a while. It seems to be working out okay. Like, listen, keep going down that path. How do you really believe it's going to end? You living for yourself, out of control, not surrendering your life to anyone or anything. Is that gonna end well? If history has taught us anything, It's that there is one name that is greater than any other name, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. That a man who lived 2,000 years ago has absolutely transformed world history because his followers went to their death, crucified, being fed to, uh, or being fed to lions by people who mocked them as they died because they wouldn't not say that Jesus rose from the dead. They didn't do it for political power. They didn't do it for money. They went to their deaths because they said, Jesus is alive. He's the son of God. And I saw him and he is the savior who took the sin of the world on his shoulders. And Jesus completely transformed the Roman empire and he has transformed every empire since. And what that Jesus is saying is, listen, I wanna be your Lord I wanna be your king, I wanna be your best friend, I wanna be your father, I wanna be your savior. That's what we were created for. We were created to worship, to know, and to love God. Any plan outside of that is leading only to destruction, amen? All right, let's pray. 
Dear Heavenly Father, God, I just thank you for this time. I thank you for uh, this church. I thank you for so many people who um, just love you and come to, to worship your name, God. And I just pray that you would um, give us all soft hearts to receive this warning. And God, um, again, I just think it's so amazing that you can perfectly diagnose our hearts and that when we read your word, we don't read it as much as it reads us. So um, God, I know there's things in my life that I need to repent of. And I just pray that we would be quick just to be honest about where we're at, believing that you're good, that you're merciful, that all of your wrath and anger against us was perfectly paid by Jesus Christ, that we have no reason to fear when we come to you. God, help us not to drift. And God, I know that this is something we're going to fight with. Um, from now until eternity, um, until we receive our new and perfect bodies. But God, I just pray that that day would come quickly, Lord, return quickly. But in the meanwhile, would you give us perseverance? Would you give us strength? Would you give us hope? We love you. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.